Well, we're all familiar historically with uh, the first satellite ever successfully sent into space, um, Sputnik. I don't know if you're familiar, though, with what happened on December 6, 1957. That was the United States' first attempt to launch a satellite into space. And uh, the countdown went, and there in Cape Canaveral, as the, as the countdown hit zero, the, the engines on the Vanguard rocket engaged, right? And you saw the, the, the rocket start to move. But unfortunately, the rocket only got four feet off the ground. And then the lift failed, and what later uh, newspaper writers called Flopnik, or <laughs> my favorite was Kaputnik. <laughs> that, was, that was my favorite. Uh, the rocket fell down to the launch pad, exploded in a ball of flame, and uh, here's your second place trophy. Way to go. You know, you didn't, you didn't make it, right? You know, no rocket. Now listen, I just want to affirm this morning, I am not a rocket scientist, Okay. No rocket can thrive if it doesn't launch. And if there is a rocket scientist here, give me an amen, right? The, the, whole, the whole point of, sending, uh, of getting a satellite into space is to get it off the launch pad, right? In order for it to do what it has to do, it's got to have a stable and successful launch. And you think about all the things that are going to happen, right? With that satellite circling the globe and collecting information and enabling communication and all, all those other things. None of that can happen without that, without that good launch. If we think about our Christian lives as being in orbit, doing what God has called us to do, walking in the light, as we've talked about in 1 John, loving others, as we've talked about in 1 John, clinging to the confession of Jesus as the Messiah that we've talked about in 1 John, right? If we think about all those different components of our lives as Christians, John has argued that all of that must be grounded on our confidence in Christ, it's because there is, true, there is truth in the gospel that we then can experience life change. And the lie floating around in the first century was, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you sign off on the right doctrinal statement. And John has said repeatedly, he has warned us repeatedly, that is not going to work. That is not Christianity. Now we know, and John's made clear, our acts of obedience, they do not earn us salvation. They do not warrant our forgiveness. Rather, they are the result of our confidence in Christ. They are the outworking of our confidence in Christ. And so you might say that confidence in Christ is the launch pad for living for Christ. A confidence in Christ is that launch pad for living for Christ. We've got to have that successful launch. And so here at the end of 1 John, John circles back and he just reminds us that, yes, we have confidence in Christ and therefore it should lead to particular behaviors or particular changes in our life. And he hits a couple random things here, not necessarily totally random, but just a few kind of different laundry list items here for us to consider that are evidence of and a result of our confidence in Christ. This is what it looks like to be in orbit, we might say. And so last week we concluded with that that famous and crucial verse, verse 13 of chapter 5, where he writes, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's, there's our confidence. And now watch verse 14. He says, this is the confidence or the assurance we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John first, uh, this morning, he talks about the, the evidence or the, the outflow of, of having confidence in Christ of prayer. And it's not just prayer as in a, a vague hope that something good will happen. Here he talks about confident or assured approaching God, right? Assuredness in how we approach God and seek him in prayer. 
Notice how he describes it. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So John says, based on the fact that we can know we have eternal life. Remember, remember last week, because of the water and the blood, because Jesus identified with us in his baptism and he died in our place and rose from the dead. Because we can know we have eternal life. Because of that confidence, we now pray. We approach God with our concerns. We go to God in worship, in prayer. And when we pray, he hears us. Now, there is a a corrective or a caveat, right? Or a condition that John includes here. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This doesn't mean that God doesn't hear every prayer, but it means that God doesn't hear every prayer favorably. That when we pray outside of his will, there is a sense in which we can say it it, it doesn't resonate with the Lord. that, That he does not hear it favorably. John says here, when we pray according to his will, he, we, are, we know because of Christ, he hears us. So as we think about that, John is already kind of dealing with the uh, treating God as Santa Claus prayer motif. Are you familiar with this one? Where God is just our divine Santa Claus. We just tell him what we want for Christmas and hope he comes through, you know? And if that's your view of God, we got to upgrade that, right? Because God has his will for us. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But John says we can go to God in confident prayer, okay? We can go to God in confident prayer because of our confidence in Christ. Now, that confidence is also related to praying according to God's will. He goes on in verse 15 just to kind of round out the thought. He says, and if we know that he hears whatever we ask, and he does, we know that we have what we have asked of him. We can be guaranteed that God will advance his glory and advance his kingdom. And so when we pray according to his will, those prayer requests are safe and we can be confident as we approach him in prayer. John is not saying everything you ask for, God will give you. He is saying, though, that God hears our prayers. God is at work doing his will in the universe. And so when we pray according to his will, we are safe in in that prayer. And all of that is why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ, we pray with confidence according to God's will. Now, let's unpack this idea a little bit and flesh it out as far as practical application. I'll give you three uh, three ways we can pray according to God's will or pray with confidence because of Christ. The first is we can pray for God's glory. We can pray for God's glory. What shows his greatness? This means when we approach God in prayer, we, we have to consciously think, Lord, What is it that will show your greatness the most in this circumstance? Which is not always the same as, Lord, what do I want in this circumstance? Can I get an amen? There's different things, right? Sometimes what I want, what I wish would happen is not what best accomplishes the glory of God displaying his greatness. And so there's an adjustment here. When we pray according to his will, we know that God's will is that his glory would be on display. So we can pray for his glory to be on display when we pray. Secondly, we can pray for God's kingdom. You, of course, remember as Jesus instructs us on how to pray in Matthew 6, and I've got that for you there in your digital bulletin, but, you know, in Matthew 6, when Jesus tells us to pray, he prays, tells us, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. When we're praying for God's kingdom to advance, that's a safe prayer request. When we're praying for God to advance the the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus, this is a good and safe prayer request which is sometimes different than just praying automatically for my causes to advance. Now, ideally, as we pursue our causes, they are in line with the advancement of the gospel, but there is an adjustment there. 
Because again, we can get into that Santa Claus moment where we're just like, God, this is what I want. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And here, John says, we have confidence when we pray because of Christ, when we pray according to God's will. Third, we can pray for God's will explicitly. And again, Jesus says, pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, what is the will of God? Are you ready? Put on your theological hats this morning. There are two ways we think about the will of God as it's revealed to us in the Bible. On the one hand, the Bible itself is a revealing, a revelation of what God calls us to. We call this God's revealed will, okay, or his will of command. This is what God says. This is how you should live. We think of the Ten Commands, the Ten Great Words, the Ten Commandments. Those fall into this category, right? What has God called me to? So if God has called me not to murder, I should not pray, Lord, help me murder this person, okay? That's a painfully obvious example, but sometimes you just got to do that, all right? We got to put the cookies low. So there we go, right? All right. So if, if God calls us not to be deceitful and deceptive and to lie, then in our prayer, we certainly should not pray for deceptive or lying agendas, right? We shouldn't pray in those trajectories, To pray according to God's will means to pray according to God's revealed will, as he calls us to live in particular ways. More, I think more honestly, we're talking about praying like this. Lord, help me to live in light of what you've called me to. I don't want to love this person right now. I am struggling to obey in this area. Lord, I'm struggling to say no to this temptation. Lord, help me to honor you by obeying. This is a prayer of sanctification where we ask God, let your will be done, not just generically, but specifically in my life as I'm facing this particular trial. And again, that's a huge prayer request, right? Because we're opening ourselves up there and asking God to continue to grow us rather than just saying, God, give me what I want. So that's the revealed will of God where we, we pray according to what God has said. And I would say this, if what you're asking for does not fall in line with the revealed will of God, you need to change what you're asking for, right? We got to make an adjustment there. We have to say, you know what? Then I am not called to pursue that. I'm called to pursue something else, right? But there's a second category of the will of God that is not revealed. It's called, the, we, sometimes we call it the secret will of God or his will of decree. So while God reveals certain things or he says things, we also understand that God is sovereign over everything, even when people do what we're not supposed to do. The most obvious example of this would be in the garden, where God told Adam and Eve, what about that tree? Don't eat the fruit. That's the revealed will of God, right? And yet in temptation, in falling to temptation, Adam and Eve disobeyed God's will. And yet the Bible is very clear that God is sovereign over all events, including Adam and Eve's decision to disobey. That doesn't make it right, doesn't make it okay, but he's sovereign over it. And so we call that it was ultimately God's decree that that would happen, or he ordained that it would happen. It's a secret will. Nobody knows what God has ordained until after it happens. And if somebody claims to know that, run far away, okay? They don't know that. And so in another sense, we also should pray in light of God's secret will. How does that work, Pastor Ryan? James 5, in James, excuse me, James 4, 15. In James chapter 4, James tells us, listen, you just got to be careful when you say, I'm going to move to Iowa, and I'm going to do this and do that. <laughs> James is like, you got to be careful. You can't just make plans to go, we're going to go to this place, we're going to do these things. You always have to add at the end, if the Lord wills. Because I don't know what God has ordained yet. And I can make a plan, and God can very quickly, and we've all experienced this, change a plan, right? Where circumstances change. And so we, we pray regarding the future with open hands. Because of Christ, we have confidence to pray in this way. 
Lord, you are trustworthy, even though I think this might happen, but I'm asking you, Lord, to do your will, to accomplish your glory, to advance your kingdom. And if it's your will, Lord, help us in this transition. Lord, help us as we pursue this. Help us as this is going on, right? And so we don't know what God's, uh, God has ordained in every circumstance, but we pray with those open hands. Again, because of Jesus, we can pray with confidence according to God's will. If you need an encouraging example of this exact kind of prayer where it, where it changes how we approach God significantly in spite of what we want, we can look to Jesus himself. And it's, the, it's a well-known example, but it's worth mentioning. You remember Jesus praying in that Garden of Gethsemane uh, the night of his betrayal and the, at the beginning of what would culminate in his crucifixion. As Jesus is going to die for us, he's going to suffer and die for us. And in that moment, as Jesus is praying, uh, we find in the Word of God this confirmation of Jesus praying to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. I'm just going to tell you something, folks. If Jesus had to pray that, we have to pray it. And I mean probably all the time. Lord, this is what I want, but what I want may not best achieve your glory. It may not be what you have willed. It may not best advance the kingdom cause. And so therefore, not my will, but yours be done. Greenpond, I want to challenge you to upgrade your prayer life in light of the gospel. Because of Jesus, we pray with confidence according to God's will. Right? We, we go to the Lord with uh, an acknowledgement that there is much more going on than just my circumstance. This does not mean that we don't bring to God our hurts, our, our difficulties, our trials. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking when, when we pray for those who are sick, for example, we pray a little differently. Yes, we pray that God would heal. And sometimes God chooses us to do that. But again, that's his secret will. We don't know. And so we also should pray God be glorified in their sickness. God advance your kingdom cause in their sickness. Lord, Lord, use their, their, their sickness as a, a means of growing their faith in you. I mean, those are big prayers. And even the little stuff we can bring to the Lord in prayer. I was thinking about some of those circumstances. You know, as a pastor, I, I encounter all kinds of uh, interesting uh, requests. But every once in a while, I get the request to pray for somebody's cousin's pet bunny who has a broken toenail, you know? It comes through. I get it. It comes through. And... Um, you know, we, I ch- you know, we all always chuckle about, oh, that your cousin's bunny has a broken toenail. Okay, so how, what, you know, I went to seminary for this. How do we, how do we handle this? Okay, got, I've missed that class, right? Praying for bunnies in seminary. Uh, but there are truths to be, to be had about in Scripture, to be found in Scripture that can help inform the prayer. For example, what we can pray. We can pray, Lord, thank you for creating that bunny. And I'm totally serious here, right? That, that bunny is a gift, and Lord, we pray for those who are caring for that bunny who are having a hard time because of the sickness and in all seriousness, because this is a model, right, for how we deal with. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray if it's your will that that bunny would heal. But if not, Lord, that may they trust you. May your glory be accomplished through this and may it somehow contribute to the kingdom advancement. Now, I may not see how that may be connected, right, but we can still pray that way. And we don't have to know how it all, how it all works out because of Christ. Because of Christ, we can go with confidence to the Lord. Confidence that we have what we've asked. Meaning, God will accomplish his glory. God will advance his kingdom. And God will have his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we can pray with that confidence. A little pro tip here. Let the scriptures inform your prayer. 
Use the prayers of the Bible as a model. Not just Matthew 6, but you should. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Ephesians 3, there's a great prayer of the Apostle Paul there. Philippians 1, short but awesome prayer in Philippians 1. Prayers of confession like Psalm 51 or Ezra 9 or even Daniel 9. I mean, you can go through, go through the Psalms. Look at those prayers and, and model your praying after what you see in the Bible. You will find that you pray less about trivial things and more about the weighty matters of life. You will pray less for your glory and your ends to be accomplished and more for God's glory to be accomplished. And that's not just changing your prayer, it's changing you. And all of this is because of the confidence we have in Christ. Sometimes we don't pray because we don't believe God exists. But sometimes we don't pray because we just don't believe He cares. And He does care. And he's called us. It's a mystery of his sovereignty that he calls us to ask him for things that he has already decided to give us. <laughs> but he wants us to ask. He wants us to approach him in faith and in confidence because of Jesus. Now, confidence in Christ certainly must transform how we pray, but it also transforms how we relate to and pray for others. Watch verse 16 as John continues. He says, If anyone sees a fellow believer, some of your Bibles there will say brother or brother or sister, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. And then in verse 17, he explains, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sinner, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. What is John talking about here? Okay, two primary views. I'll explain them both just because they're, they're pretty common. Some people think that John is talking about sin that leads to physical death and that you should, uh, you should pray for believers that are struggling with sin in general, but not the kind of sin that means that they've died. Okay, and so the, the main problem with that view is it doesn't fit very well with the, the, the context of the book. It is far more likely that what John is talking about here is spiritual death. He has already described that there are people who have proven they are not in the family. Why? Because they've said, I believe this, but I'm not actually living as a a believer. And they've actually rejected the confession that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. They've said Jesus is an important spirit, or he's just a man, you know, any of these different versions. But one way or another, they haven't believed the gospel, and their lives prove that they haven't believed the gospel. For those people, they are in a state of sin that leads to spiritual death. And I think that's what John is talking about here. So he's talking about, listen, there are kind of two categories of of people. There are those who are in the family, and those who are in the family sometimes struggle with sin. Watch verse 16 again. Just look at it. He says, If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. What, What does John mean? He means if you see a saint, a brother or sister, struggling with sin, you should pray for them. Right? We should engage spiritually as a family and not just see them struggling and go, man, I'm glad I'm not them. Right? Or not see them struggling and go and, and gossip about it with somebody else. Or not see them struggling and judge and look down your nose and think, I would never struggle with that. No. John says, what are we going to do? Because of Christ, we intercede for struggling saints. We intercede for struggling saints. Now, to those who, who have rejected the gospel, it doesn't mean we don't pray for them, but we don't pray for them in this way, in a special way where we're praying for the saints as they struggle with their temptation to sin. Now, let's just, again, flesh this out a little bit and see how it applies. 
This never happens by accident, okay? You're never going to pray for somebody else who's struggling by, by accident. It's a conscious choice where you're saying, I'm going to look at others in my life, and I'm going to recognize, especially believers or exclusively believers, I'm going to look at them and say, I'm in this walk with them. And when I see them struggling, and as you get to know people better, you will see them struggling, right? When I see them struggling, I'm not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to judge them for it. I'm not going to respond with harshness about it. I am going to put my arm around them. I am going to pray for them, and I'm going to walk alongside them. This fits exactly with what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, where he calls us to bear the other's burdens in the, in the church, that we walk together bearing one another's burdens in Christ. And so we are called to do this work. And John says here, because of Christ, because of the water and the blood, what do we do? We pray, right? We pray with confidence according to God's will, and we intercede for struggling saints in a special way. You should have a special dedicated part of your prayer time where you're praying for Christians who are struggling. Now, again, that means we have to look at one another with a conscious, committed level of investment in our lives where we say, I'm not just going to sit near you in church. I'm going to be near you in life. I'm not just going to look at you, right? I'm going to walk with you. So we're family, beloved little children, John says. So we pray for one another. Additionally, that means that if you're part of the church, in order to benefit from this kind of prayer, You need to be willing to share when you're struggling because many forms, maybe most forms of struggling with sin are not apparently obvious at just like first glance on a Sunday morning, right? So we need to be willing to share with others and say, you know what? I'm having a hard time right now with this. I'm struggling with this relationship. I'm struggling with this circumstance. Will you pray for me? And John says, because of Christ, because of the confidence we have in Jesus, we intercede for struggling saints. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean we just pray for them once and then let it go. And should they fail to be repentant, then we walk through the process with them, and we lovingly walk with them and try to show them the truth of God's Word. But one way or another, confidence in Christ changes the way we relate to one another in the body. Because of Jesus, we can, we can affirm that we struggle, we can pray for one another in that struggle, and we can walk forward in faith. Again, confidence in Christ means we pray with confidence according to God's will and we intercede for struggling saints. But then notice in verse 18, as we see it also just changes our perspective in general. In verse 18, John writes, we know, and we're back to this word we know, and just side note here, he's going to use this thing like five times just in this last paragraph that that we've looked at this morning. Because, remember, the false teaching of the day was like, oh, true knowledge means you kind of have this secret club and all that. So he's, he's correcting that false teaching. So he's back to we know, verse 18. We know. We know what? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now pause here, okay? Don't freak out. <laughs> we covered this before, remember? He's not saying you never, you never stumble. He's saying we don't continue in a lifestyle of sin without repentance. Right? That's what he's saying there. So we don't continue on just with no care for what, how we live. And remember, that was the false teaching. You, you can check off doctrinally. It doesn't matter how you live, what you do on Friday night. And there's no remorse. There's no, there's no repentance. There's none of that. It's just, you know, we just live however we want. And I pray the prayer. I'm good. John says, no, no. The one who's been born of God, everyone who's born of God does not sin, does not continually manifest an unrepentant attitude towards sin in their life. But then he says something very interesting in verse 18. Watch it. He says, but 
the one who is born of God keeps him or protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's a, there's, it's, it's hard to translate in English, but there's a difference in the way he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but there's one who's born of God. The first time he says it, he's talking about we're born of God like all of us become believers, and there's this ongoing reality that we now have been born of God and we're in the family. But the second time, he's talking about there was one time when someone was born of God that was significant. And of course, he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. And notice what he says about Jesus. And I halfway wish they would have capitalized it. But nonetheless, the one who's born of God protects the believer. Did you know that Jesus protects you and me right now? That he is actively, spiritually guarding us? That as his spirit indwells us, Jesus is leading us? So the one who is born of God, that's a reference to Jesus, the Son of God, he keeps or protects us. And as a byproduct of that, and in contrast to that, the evil one who would seek to derail us does not or cannot touch him. The evil one cannot touch you. You've heard it here. It actually is true. Satan is a loser. He has lost the battle. Jesus has been victorious over him. And so we do not need to live in fear of satanic attack or even of Satan's influence over us by virtue of his assault on what we believe through many different uh, you know, avenues. We've talked about it throughout the course of the book, through false versions of Christianity, through bad theology, through pressures from the culture, all those sources. The evil one can't touch us because of Christ. We have this confidence in Christ. Jesus protects us and the evil one does not touch him. Now that's not true of the world. Watch verse 19. He says, we know that we are of God. We're in the family. We belong. But in contrast, the whole world, that is those who do not believe, they are under the sway of the evil one. There is a reality here. One commentator called it a helpless passivity in the world to the influence of Satan. So he's said it before, but let's just be really clear about what John means here. John is affirming this, that for those who are not followers of Jesus, right, he's saying this, Satan has temporary authority over this world, and therefore Satan is influencing how they think and what they believe is true about life, the universe, and themselves. And so there's this recognition that Satan has that sway with others that he does not have with the church or with believers. We are protected from it. We stand in distinction to it. And you might think, well, is that really a biblical concept that Satan actually has temporary authority? Yes, it's very clear in the Bible. Jesus affirms it in John 14, 15, and 16. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2, verse 2. We've got it uh, alluded to clearly in the book, or not alluded to, but stated explicitly in the book of Job, right? That Satan has temporary right, reign over the world, but that is all under God's sovereignty, right? Under God's care, and we don't have to fear that. But those who are followers of Jesus have been rescued out of Satan's authority or Satan's influence. And so there's this need to continue to walk in light of that victory, to know that we belong to God, not to the evil one, and that Jesus protects us even this very day. Again, this is all built on the confidence we have in Christ. Yes, we're going to live and experience temptation, but we don't have to give in. We can say no. We don't have to listen to the evil one. 
And that leads him in verse 20 to just start to unpack some of these foundational truths that he's explained throughout the letter. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come, like literally come in the incarnation. And he has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. Are you counting no's? We're getting up there, right? So we may know the true one. And guess what? We are in the true one that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I think the he at the end of verse 20 refers to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. He is the true God at eternal life. It's in Christ, not a, an imagined spiritualized Jesus, not a secularized Jesus who didn't live and do miracles, but the actual son of God who came and took on flesh for us. Remember, that's John's big concern. This is the confession of the gospel that Jesus actually came and took on flesh and walked around with us and died for us. And rose, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And so John says, that's what we know. That's what, that's what we have the confidence in. And we are in the true one. We are in Christ by faith. And we have eternal life in him. And so really, at that, that verse 20 there is John just kind of taking that last moment to just say, listen, just so we're really clear, what these people are telling you is not true. We know what is true. The gospel is not some secret little piece of knowledge that's tucked away, hidden in a library somewhere. The gospel is the open proclamation of Jesus who has fulfilled what he said he was going to do. In verse 21, John concludes with what seems like a PS or like an afterthought, but it's really not. It's the natural outflowing of his discussion on the confidence we have in Christ. He says, little children, little beloved ones, guard yourselves from idols. John out, (laughs) right? Done. He says, if you're going to live in light of the confidence we have in Christ, you're going to pray. You're going to pray with confidence according to God's will. You're going to intercede for struggling saints. And thirdly, right, because of Christ, we're going to know we have spiritual victory and we're going to live in light of it. And that means doing battle with our idolatry, saying no to those idols, Because of Christ, we know we have spiritual victory. I'm just going to review the categories that he reminds us of that we have spiritual victory in our lives right now. First of all, we have spiritual victory in that we are spiritually protected in Christ and we are protected from Satan's influence, which means we say no to sin. So we don't continue in sin without repentance. We confess our sin and we grow. I'm going to call that just spiritual growth. That because of Christ, we have victory in that we will continue to grow spiritually. We will continue to grow in faith-driven obedience. We'll continue to grow in sanctification, being set apart for Jesus. But secondly, we have spiritual victory in that we have protection from Satan. And that comes directly through faith in God's word and the confidence we have in what God has said. We've said it before. I need to say it again. Satan's attack is going to come at you through what you believe. He's going to attack you through your mind. And so the passages in Scripture that talk about spiritual warfare, they talk about dealing with your mind and what you believe. And the Word of God is a protection for us against Satan's attacks. He can't touch you. He can't steal you from the Lord Jesus. But he will try to derail you. He will try to influence how you think. You don't have to fear him. Rather, the one born of God, Jesus the Messiah, he protects us from him. So we have victory in that that we have protection from Satan. Thirdly, we have victory in that we have membership and belonging in God's kingdom. We are of God, John says. Like, what's your family like? You know, we all have our our family histories. Some of your family histories are interesting. 
I'm not going to name names. You know who you are. Um, you know, you, you, you think about your family history and where God's brought you and what your family characteristics are and all that. But John says, beloved, we are of God. This is our family. And we belong. And yeah, we, and we stick together. We make the covenant. We're sticking together no matter what. We belong together because we belong to him. And so that's a, a manifestation of the victory that we have in Christ. We belong to his kingdom. And therefore, we're not, a, we don't belong to the world, which means we don't belong to those who are helpless in their submission to Satan. Um, we got to recognize that those that we love and are seeking to share the gospel with, that they are under satanic influence. And we need to pray that God would shine the light of the gospel in their hearts, that they would see the truth of the gospel for what it is, and that God would deliver them and rescue them. And praise God, he's doing that every day, delivering people. But we have to, we have to recognize that we're not just dealing with, you know, garden variety unbelief. But we're talking about this world is under satanic influence. Not like some kind of cryptic, like, you know, Hollywood, you know, possession thing. But no, under satanic influence in seeking to prevent people from coming to the knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. And so this is a battle for what people believe, right? So we have membership and belonging in God's kingdom, which is protection then from satanic influence in the world. And that also means, fourthly, we have fellowship. One of the parts of victory that we have in Jesus is we have fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We are in the true one, John says in verse 20. Do you realize that we have fellowship with God right now because of Jesus? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it because we're too absorbed in our phones or we're too distracted by the drama with the kids or we're too caught up in what's going on at work or we're too much you know, wrapped up in the politics or whatever. We just get distracted from the fact that because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, we have communion with God, which means that we pray with confidence and we intercede for the struggling saints, Right? That we have this ongoing fellowship with God because of what Jesus has done through the Spirit for us. Fifthly, because of Jesus, we know we have spiritual victory in that we have guaranteed eternal life. No one can rob us of this gift. We, we, we can't lose that gift. Right? There is this confidence that in Christ we have eternal life because he is the true God and he himself is eternal life. And so we look forward to that with a confident hope. Not like a, man, I hope that, you know, the Jets win the, the Super Bowl this year. I almost forgot what it was called. Praise the Lord. You know, I don't miss that. But anyway, you know, this like vague longing, like, oh, you know, hope it happens. No, it's not that. It's because of Jesus, because we have confidence in Christ, because of the water and the blood, we know we have eternal life. So we don't have to look forward at the future with fear and despair. And just, again, maybe a side note here of application, but right now, culturally, because we're so divided as a culture and people are looking forward and all they're seeing, even Christians, all they're seeing is despair. Um, you know, the temptation to like, oh, this is what's, you know, kind of connected to what we read in Ezekiel or Revelation. This means the end is here and everything's going down. And it's like, even if that's true, it's okay. It's okay. We're safe in Christ. And so we can, we can look to the future with confidence, not being naive that it's all easy, right? But we can look to the future with confidence because we have eternal life in Christ. And so those are the five categories of victory, which then lead to that kind of final just reminder. Don't forget, little children, beware of idols. Now, some commentators think that John was writing from Ephesus, which was churning out idols of the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis all the time. Greco-Roman goddess. And so like that place, it was like Costco for 
idols of Artemis. That's really what it was. And they, were just, and they were shipping those things all over the place. So some people think John's writing about literal idols, but I think it's probably more realistic to recognize that John knew that physical idols were only one part of the conversation. Meaning, John knows, because of the Old Testament, that idolatry is not just a matter of wood and stone, but it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what do you value most. And John says, beloved, beloved little ones, (laughs) my fellow brothers and sisters, don't forget that every day you will be tempted to love something else more than Jesus. Guard yourselves from that. Gear up for that battle. Call it what it is. And be willing to engage in that spiritual warfare, which is the one that will really hurt you. All right, ask the question, what is it that I will be tempted to love more than Christ? And that I'd be okay being in heaven with that, even if Jesus wasn't there. I'd be okay with it. We've got to beware idols. Ask the question, where are you vulnerable? Where are you exposed? At the end of the day, praying with confidence, right, according to God's will, praying and interceding for struggling saints and just knowing that we have this victory, being, being cognizant of and living in light of the fact that we have this victory, all of that is a result of Jesus' work for us. It's because of Christ. That's why we sing songs like, all I have is Christ. And yet not I, but Christ in me and in Christ alone. Because outside of Christ, we don't have any of that. But it's because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, that we have those gifts I don't know if you remember that classic by Elizabeth George Spear, The Sign of the Beaver. It's uh, part of our school curriculum, so we're, we're fresh on it at the boys' house. But uh, it's set in colonial times, and there's a, a kind of a colonial family. Actually, there's a dad and a son who are out kind of working this uh, frontier farm in the colonial era, and the dad has to make a long trip to go back and get supplies and to try to get the rest of the family. And so this younger man is left there, Matthew. He's left home alone at this frontier farm, and he has to basically hold down the fort until his dad comes back, which is supposed to be just in a few weeks. Well, he doesn't come back in just a few weeks. It ends up being months and months. So there's all these things that happen uh, and the different kind of challenges of frontier living in the colonial era. It's a really great read. But anyway, uh, it gets to a point where Matthew has to make a decision. He's been befriended by a group of Native Americans, and he has to decide, am I going, am I going to leave the farm with these, with this kind of newfound, you know, my new pack, the, the Native American tribe, or am I going to stay by myself without certainty of what will come? And he has to make a decision. And what was determinative for him in making that decision was his father's promise. He said, I'm coming back. And so he ends up choosing to stay. Even though it was hard, even though it was uncertain, even though the winter was already bearing down on him, he says, I'm going to stay because of what, what the father has said. And I just couldn't help but think about how that is an analogy for right here what we're facing. We're called to a life of following Jesus. We're in orbit, right? And we're doing these things. We're called to pray. We're called to obey. We're called to confess our sin. We're called to treat others in a specific way. All of this. But what's the basis of it? What's the motivation? How, How can we make that decision to walk that road? And the answer is, it's all because of Christ. And John says, you can be different. You can live with this confidence. You can be transformed. It's not about us being amazing. 
It's because of Jesus and what He's done for us. Don't for a minute believe that you can check a box, say, I believe, and then live however you want. And don't believe for a minute that how you live determines whether or not you're forgiven. John says, because of Christ, because of the gospel, we now are empowered to live these transformed lives. We can make that decision. And yes, I can't promise you what's going to happen tomorrow. I can't tell you it's going to be easy. But John says, I know you'll be tempted with idolatry. But I can tell you that we can endure because of Christ. So let's pray together and ask Jesus to help us in that very endeavor. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for 1 John, and we thank you for, uh, well, Lord, so much of this book is directly and immediately applicable to our current circumstances. We know that we are daily under threat of false thinking about our spiritual lives. Lord, we're under threat of thinking that by checking a doctrinal box that we are freed from living in reality in light of your gospel. So protect us from that. Lord, we also pray that you would protect us from thinking that our performance is what warrants our forgiveness. But Lord, we see here a different way, this way where the foundation, this this platform, this launch pad of confidence in you, Lord Jesus, it leads to then transformed living. And Lord, I pray as I know we all are struggling in various areas, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to pray with confidence according to your will. Lord, help us to intercede for struggling saints and to be aware of and engage with one another in the church. And Lord, help us to live daily with this knowledge, this true knowledge that you are the true one, that in you we have eternal life, that we are in your family because of what you have done for us. And Lord, we have victory over Satan and the evil one cannot touch us. Lord, we pray that in light of all that, you would help us to say no to idols, to pursue and to love you above all else. And Lord, even even in these requests, we're asking for your glory to be accomplished. We're asking for your kingdom to advance, and we're asking for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.